Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coastal Crimes, the podcast about the dark side of your favorite tropical vacation spots. I'm Jen, your host, and this week I am bringing to you two stories that take place in Argentina. Now, before I get started, I just wanted to throw out a disclaimer about the first case. Um, If you are sensitive to stories that include child abuse or violence committed by a child, uh, I would just recommend skipping through to the second half of our show today because the first case does involve those kinds of things. All right, now that you've been warned, here are some fun facts about Argentina. Um, Argentina was one of the first countries in the world to have radio broadcasting. The country's first broadcast was made in August of 1920, and at that time only 20 people even had a receiver. The ex-president and actual Argentinian vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, was the first woman president to be officially elected in Argentina. However, she isn't the first female president to ever rule over Argentina. Isabel Perón, who was the vice president to her husband, Juan Domingo Perón, stood in as Argentina's first female president for two years after her husband's sudden death in 1974. Although football, without a doubt, is Argentina's favorite sport, a much lesser known sport called pato is the official national sport in Argentina. It is a game played on horseback combining the elements of polo and basketball. Pato is Spanish for duck, as in the game's early versions, as early as 1610, a live duck inside of a basket was used instead of a ball. To play Pato was a very gaucho pastime and was often played in between neighboring estancias, where the first team to reach its own ranch with the duck would be declared the winner. Kind of reminds me of like a capture the flag kind of a game. Anyway, Pato was banned various times as it was deemed too violent, not only for those poor ducks, but many players were trampled underfoot. In 1953, Perón declared Pato to be Argentina's official official national sport, and it's still played today, however, a much less violent version, and the use of ducks is strictly forbidden. It's an Argentinian tradition to eat gnocchi on the 29th of each month, a habit probably introduced by Italian immigrants. Gnocchi, which is made of potato, flour, and salt, was a cheap meal, ideal for the last days of the month when money was tight. Argentinians have the custom of placing money under their plate of gnocchi to attract good luck and fortune for the coming month. As a tourist in Argentina, you'll notice that many restaurants serve a special gnocchi menu on the 29th. As well as being radio pioneers, Argentinians also created the first animated feature films. The world's first full-length cartoon was made and released in Argentina by a man named Quirino Cristiani in 1917, and it is said he was an inspiration to Walt Disney, who during his trip to Argentina visited Quirino's studio in the outskirts of Buenos Aires. Even more than animation, Argentina loves cinema. Argentinians have one of the highest rates of movie watching in the world. Also, film production in Argentina has become one of the biggest film industries in the Spanish-speaking world. Incredibly, Argentine women go through the highest number of plastic surgeries per person in the world. Argentina is perhaps one of the world's most looks-conscious countries. Sadly, more than 30% of its women undergo some form of eating disorder. 
Another unusual effect about Argentine culture is that Argentina is the nation with the most psychologists per capita in the world. Might be because of the looks kind of a thing, like how people are super concentrated on what they look like, so there's probably more psychologists to help deal with those mental issues. And recent studies show that there are 145 psychologists per 100,000 residents, which is quite a lot if you really think about it. Argentina was the first country to use fingerprinting as a method of identification. In 1892, the small Argentinian town of Necochea or Necochea in the province of Buenos Aires was rocked by the gruesome stabbing of two children. With no witnesses to the crime, local police were unable to tie the murder to any particular suspect, utilizing a bloody fingerprint left on a door handle. A local detective discovered the murderer to be the kid's mother, who, not long after, confessed to the crime. So, those are our facts, which I particularly like the last one because it introduces fingerprint as a method of identification, which, as we all know, is still used today. Now, before I begin, I just want to say that this kid is at the top of my bizarre list of serial killers and is also just super sad. His whole situation is sad, but I wanted to cover this case to bring awareness that this stuff does happen and that we should pay attention if a kid is showing signs of abuse or anything like that. We should always bring that to authorities or to the proper or through the proper channels. Okay. Let's begin. Cayetano Santos Godino, also known as Petiso Orejudo, which translates to big-eared midget, was an Argentinian serial killer who terrified Buenos Aires at the age of 16. He was also the first serial killer in Argentina's history. In the early 20th century, he was responsible for the murder of four children, the attempted murder of another seven children, and the arson of seven buildings. Godino was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina on Halloween in 1896, one of eight boys and the last of 10 kids. His father and mother, Fiore Godino and Lucia Rufo, were Calsbrian immigrants who moved to Buenos Aires in 1884, escaping poverty. They were also running from per personal tragedy of their firstborn 10-month-old son's death from cardiac affection. Cayetano was doomed before his parents ever even conceived him. His father was an alcoholic and played the guitar. One thing led to another until he contracted syphilis from one of his fans. The cure for syphilis, penicillin, had not been discovered yet. But that didn't stop Fiore from wanting his little man satisfied, so Cayetano was made. This caused him to have many health problems during his childhood. During his earliest years, he was on the brink of death several times with enteritis. It's this nasty infection which is usually caused by eating or drinking contaminated food or water, or improperly prepared food, poor hygiene or sanitation, or coming into close contact with an infected person or animal. You can take your pick as to why he was so sick with this illness so much. So here he is, still alive, fragile, and with bad genes, but fate was not done with him yet. On the days when his father got drunk, 
He used his entire family like punching bags. When doctors examined Cayetano's head at a much later date, they found 27 scars on his head alone that were created by his father and older brother. Now, picture a young boy who was very short for his age, small head, very long arms, and extremely large ears. This is what he looked like, and this is why he earned the name Big Eared Midget. Starting in his childhood, Godino killed cats and birds and enjoyed playing with fire. He entered school at age five and he had to go to six different schools, each one expelling him for his lack of interest in studying and his rebellious behavior. And in all that time, nobody even taught him how to read. But that gave him more time to roam the streets of his neighborhood looking for something evil to do. Because of his appearance of being an idiot, most grown-ups overlooked him and he had no problem gaining the trust of little ones with the promise of play or candy in the future. So we begin on September 28, 1804. He was seven years old. Cayetano gained the confidence of Miguel de Paul with the promise of candy. Miguel was almost two years old at the time. They walked to a wasteland before Cayetano threw the boy on a pile filled with thorny branches. A policeman heard the cries from nearby and came before Cayetano could hurt him anymore. A trip to the police station while waiting for his mom to come and take him home was the only punishment this time, and this was his first attempt at murder. A year later, he led Anna Neary, 18 months old, into another wasteland and started whacking the toddler's head with a rock. Because of the child's cries, this action was interrupted again by a policeman. Cayetano was considered too young for jail, and they thought it was just a fight between two boys, so he was sent back home with his father. Then, on March 22, 1906, a girl went missing. Her name is not quite known, but I think it might have been Maria. By the time her parents had heard about her final hours on Earth, they had moved back to Italy and a two-story house was built on the supposed burial site. There was no corroborating evidence to back up Cayetano's story when he confessed, but I'm guessing that the authorities were just too lazy to dig up the house to see, and since the parents were immigrants that had gone back to their own country, then why bother? Cayetano wasn't going anywhere, and they needed to bring some peace to the community at the time. And maybe it was for the best of that period. Cayetano was also described taking the hand of a little girl and leading her to the wasteland. Once there, he tried to strangle her. And when that didn't work, he buried her alive in a ditch filled with rubbish, then just walked away. And the missing girl was never found. Again, this is a confession from Cayetano, but since the police didn't really look into it, we can't know for sure if this actually happened. Then just a few days later, April 5th, his father discovered when he woke up a shoebox filled with the family's pet canaries, all dead and all with their eyes missing, laying beside his bed. He went to the police station and begged them to do something about his boy. His outrageous behavior towards his family and neighbors and the threat of injury to all who lived around him were the reasons that his father gave. They agreed and they took his troubled son off his hands and mind for two months. When Cayetano returned home, it was life as usual, with one more treat he learned as he wandered the streets. Masturbation. 
Several times a day, he would masturbate while daydreaming about the evil things he could do to his future victims. On September 9th, 1908, he found another victim playing unattended and got Severino Gonzalez, age two, to go with him with the promise of sweets. They went to a warehouse right across the street from the School for Sacred Heart, where he proceeded to drown the little boy in a horse trough. Zacanas Caviglia, or Caviglia, yeah, Caviglia, sorry, I'm, I'm bad with pronouncing these names. Um, he, the proprietor of this place, heard the disturbance that the boys were causing. He went to investigate and found the two boys, both wet, with one in the large tub. But Cayetano talked his way out of his crime by telling him of a mysterious woman in black and being led there in the nick of time to help the toddler from certain death. He even led the police to the place where he first started following the lady the next day. Then, only six days later, he burned the eyelids of a 22-month-old child named Julio Botel with a cigarette. The screams of the child brought his mother running. Cayotano took off and was gone by the time the mother reached her child. Fiore and Lucia, Cayetano's parents, had enough of his shocking behavior by now, so they carted him off to the police one more time. And this time, the authorities sent him to the Colony of Smaller Peace for three years. There is no way to discover the physical and emotional abuse he had to go through while he was there. He did try to escape on many occasions, and he got to come home in time for the Christmas holiday season on December 23, 1911. He had just turned 15 years old two months before. When he hit the streets again, his mind had grown cold and hard. Although his father had found him a job, it didn't last long, only about three months, before he lost it and was trolling the streets again. This time, his neighborhood expanded to reach the seedy parts of the town. It was there that he learned how to drink alcohol, and with the drinking came extreme headaches where the urges to kill were great. During the same time, he discovered another secret pleasure, fire. On January 17, 1912, Cayetano set fire to a warehouse on Corrientes Street. When he was arrested, he told the police, I like to see the firemen working. It's nice to see how they fall into the fire. On January 26, 1912, Arturo Larona, 13 years old, was found dead in an abandoned house. He had been beaten, was half naked, and with a cord tied around his neck. The police had no clue where to go and search for this child murderer. It wasn't until Cayetano's confession in the future that they realized just how evil he was. He claimed to have taken this boy to an empty house and covered his mouth with a handkerchief after tying him up. He proceeded to whip him with a branch from a fig tree. And then when he grew tired of that, he strangled him and then left to go wander the streets. A few months later, on March 7, 1912, Cayetano set fire to the dress of Reina Vainikov, five years old. Her grandfather heard her cries from across the street and ran to save her. He never got the chance. He was struck by a car, and he died in the street. A policeman nearby threw Reina to the ground and tried to put the fire out with his own body. She was sent to the hospital, where she died 16 days later. 
and Cayetano was there in the crowd watching all of it. In late September 1912, he set fire to a railway station, which was extinguished without extensive damage. On November 8, 1912, he tried to choke eight-year-old Roberto Russo by promising him candy. He took him to a warehouse where he tied Roberto's feet with a rope used as a belt from around his trousers. But he was interrupted again by a laborer who worked nearby. He was arrested and charged with attempted murder, but was released again until the trial. On November 16, 1912, he hit Carmen Gitoni, who suffered minor wounds before a police officer intervened. Then, on November 20, 1912, he kidnapped two-year-old Carolina Neoliner, who cried out and was rescued by a neighbor. Later in the same month, he set fire to two large sheds that were extinguished quickly. The police were keeping an eye on him now. Since they knew all about his past history, they grew very suspicious at being called to possible crime scenes and his explanations about how he was there at the exact moment when the kids in question needed his help. But because of each child's age, they couldn't get the real story. The kids were just too young to be able to tell them what really happened. On December 3rd, 1912, Gerald Giordano was playing outside his house and Cayetano offered to buy the boy some sweets to convince him to go with him. Providing a few sweets, then offering some more, he took Giordano to a country house. When they were inside, he threw him to the floor and unsuccessfully tried to choke him with his belt. Then he cut his belt and tied his hands and legs. He started beating him and considered hammering his head. He left the house looking for a nail and saw Giordano's father, who asked him where his son was, and he said he didn't even know where he was, and then went back to the house after finding a nail. He hammered it into the side of Giordano's skull and then hid his body. Giordano was found by his father a few minutes later. The police set up outposts around their house that night, waiting and watching to see who came by. The women of the community had laid out Gerald Giordano's body on a table in one of the rooms in the house. There were so many people who came by to pay their respects, but Cayetano was used to blending in with the adult crowd and he went inside to see Gerald right before the eyes of the police. Nobody noticed inside either as he went up to where Gerald was and just stared at him for a while. Then he went even closer and touched Gerald's skull where the nail was. At 5.30 a.m. on December 4th, the very next morning, he was arrested by police, finally. Cayetano talked for many hours, telling everything that he had done in the past. They also found the newspaper article in his pocket. Although Cayetano couldn't even read, he still took it as a trophy. He had bought the newspaper the day before, cutting out the article so he could look at it whenever he wanted. His sister told the police about the blood she had found on his clothes when he arrived home that day. He was finally charged for three murders and 11 aggressions. The public cried out for capital punishment, but because Cayetano was still only 15, again, only 15 years old at that time, the two judges decided to send him to a reformatory where he was sentenced for the next two years. 
On January 4th, just a month later, he entered the reformatory and he tried to kill some of the inmates. Due to medical reports, which declared him insane, the judge discontinued the case and ordered him to stay in the reformatory. Hoping, I'm guessing, that the reformatory will help mold him into a better person, but honestly, at this point, I'm not sure if that's possible. Then, on November 12, 1915, two years later, an appeal was approved ordering him to be moved to jail on November 20th. So he'll be leaving the penitentiary, or the, not the penitentiary, he'll be leaving the reformatory and entering a penitentiary. It took a while, though. On March 28, 1923, eight years later, eight years, Cayetano Godino was transferred to, oh goodness, this is a hard one too, Ushuea Penitentiary. I'm so sorry, I totally butchered that. During the course of 1933, ten years after that, he spent some time in the hospital for a beating he suffered from inmates due to having killed two cats who they were watching at the time. And then from 1935 onwards, he was always sick and received no visitors until he finally passed away in 1944 under strange circumstances. The official cause was reported as internal bleeding caused by a gastritis outbreak, but someone could also have put something in his food or beaten him to the point that it caused internal bleeding. The prison was closed down in 1947, and as they dug up the graves of all the dead inmates, they found the bones of Cayetano missing. It was later learned that someone made a paperweight with one of his bones and had given it to the last director of the prison. The prison is actually now a museum with wax fig figures of all the famous inmates that it held, including Cayetano Godino, which is kind of creepy if you ask me. <laughs> Cayetano never said he regretted his crimes, and what's worse, he was never even aware of the problem that was made by committing them. Sadly, I don't think he ever had a chance. Criminals are made. Evil is made. Child serial killers are not so uncommon if you do the research into our history. And sadly, as time goes on, we will probably see more. And that's all for him. Now, onto my other case, which is a little less hardcore than this. I didn't want to end my episode with, on that note, but I did think that Cayetano Godino's story is important and should be heard. Now, my second case is about Carlos Manzon, the boxer. Carlos Manzon was an, was an Argentine professional boxer who held the world middleweight title for seven years, during which he successfully defended the title 14 times, so about two times a year, which is kind of a lot if you think about how often boxers and everybody and those professional fighters actually fight. His legacy is right on par with the likes of Diego Maradona, Juan Manuel Fangio, and Lionel Messi. As dominant a fighter Carlos was inside the ring, the toughest fight he endured was the one against his own violent personality outside of the ring. Carlos is also one of boxing's most tragic stories. A poor child grows up to be the toast of the boxing world, only to end up in prison for murder and then dead as the results of a car accident. But 
Let's start at the beginning. While many boxing champions from the U.S. or Europe come from tough inner-city neighborhoods, most of Argentina's finest fighters punch their way out of the grim frontier provinces to make their way to the bright lights of Buenos Aires in the hope of earning fame and fortune. This is the story of Carlos Roque Manzón. Carlos Manzón was born in the city of San Javier, Argentina, in the Santa Fe Providence on August 7, 1942. He lived in a humble home with his parents, who were of indigenous Mokovi or Makavi ancestry, and four siblings. Carlos was typical of many fighters, born into a dirt-poor family in a forbidding neighborhood. And like so many future champions, he took up boxing at a young age and used it as a way out of his dire circumstances. His violent tendencies and inability to control his emotions helped him greatly as a boxer, but it caused a bevy of problems in his personal life. He dropped out of school in the third grade and immediately started working to support his family. He toiled through a range of odd jobs, such as newspaper delivery boy and milkman, but later he found he could also make a little money from his new hobby of boxing. Carlos would earn up to 50 pesos by winning loosely organized backstreet bouts. He began working his way up through the amateur ranks and came across the trainer who would shepherd him through the rest of his career and became a father figure and lifelong companion, Amilcar Brusa. Now, in the 1970s, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, and George Foreman highlighted the golden age of boxing, but Carlos Monzon deserves to be in the same sentence as those all-time greats. He turned pro in 1963 at the age of 20, winning his first fight with a second-round knockout. The six-foot-tall, hard-as-flint middleweight battled his way through 19 fights over the next two years. He lost three times in that period in what was a merciless trial by fire for the still-developing boxer. Never would he taste defeat again in the ring, one of the greatest streaks in the history of boxing. Most importantly, he was taken under the wing of fight promoter Juan Carlos Ortito Lectura, patron of Buenos Aires' boxing coliseum, Luna Park. Revered boxing journalist Carlos Arusta first met Carlos Monzon at that time. Like many fight experts, he was not initially blown away by the Santa Fe fighter's aura. He was a very polite guy, but he didn't talk much, said Arusta. He wasn't charismatic, and at that stage, Carlos was just another boxer. He didn't give you the impression that he would go on to reach the heights that he did. Boxing legends like Mike Tyson praised Carlos for his skill in the ring. I always loved Carlos Manzon. He was a tough guy for real, a guy from the streets, Tyson told Ole. He didn't talk much. He didn't need to. The ring belonged to him. Despite his weak first impression, Carlos's professional reputation grew on the back of some fine victories in Lectura's Arena, Luna Park, which were broadcast on national television. Eventually, he was given the chance to fight for the title of Argentine champion. He surprised almost everybody by beating the highly regarded Jorge Fernandez to become the champion of Argentina on September 13, 1966. Dub Huntley, the trainer of Daniel Ponce de Leon and others, traveled to Buenos Aires in August 1968 to fight the then-rising contender Carlos Manzón. Huntley, 
stopped in four rounds, remembers his impressions of the future champion vividly. First, I think he trained very hard, Huntley said. I could see he was in very good condition, and he was smart, very smart. He had the height, six feet, and reach 70 in 76 inches, too. He knew how to use that to his advantage. I didn't think he was so special at the time, but I think he was still developing. He just got better and better and better until he became a great fighter. From there, his steady progress continued until he earned a shot at the world middleweight title against the great Italian boxer Nino Benvenuti in Rome on November 7, 1970. And once again, nobody thought he had much of a chance of victory. It was a more romantic time, remembers Carlos Arusta. We, the boxing community, all got together to give Carlos Monzon a farewell dinner in Luna Park. There were a lot of us, and nobody except for Brusa, Lectura, and one veteran journalist, Simon Bronenberg, believed in Carlos. The Argentine public at that time were drawn to more charismatic figures, including Benvenuti himself, a suave boxer-cum-movie star whose face could be seen on billboards around Buenos Aires. Carlos could walk along Corrientes Street in a suit and nobody would recognize him, recalled Arusta. All eyes were on Benvenuti. I got the feeling that the average spectator was thinking, who is this guy, Manzon? Who's going off to fight the champ? World middleweight champion Nino Benvenuti had a long and distinguished career that included championships in two divisions and two wins in three bouts versus all-time great Emil Griffith. He had lost the year before to American Tom Bathia in Australia, but in a title rematch in Yugoslavia, he avenged that loss. The world title bout was broadcast on a Saturday afternoon in Argentina. Buenos Aires stopped to watch, says Irusta. The next day, everyone was talking about Carlos. If he'd lost, though, it would have been just another fight. Fight fans were in for a shock. The brilliant Benvenuti was made to look obsolete. His punches failed to land while Carlos was precise, flawless. The final round is part of boxing folklore. Carlos battered and shattered the champion in the 12th before peddling oblivion with his crazy right fist. It was one of the purest knockouts in the sport's history. But equally striking was the way the Argentine Carlos Monzon nonchalantly turned and strolled back to his corner after delivering the brutal blow, as if he had just punched off of work at a factory rather than punched out the revered middleweight champion of the world. Those three minutes were pure Manzon, mechanical, calculating, clever, and merciless. Benvenuti would get a rematch the following year in Monte Carlo, but this time he only lasted three rounds. Manzon had gone from laconic provincial Hartman to international idol. He became a star overnight, a dashing figure who would hold his title until he retired in 1977 and become an enormous cultural figure in his country and beyond. In 1971, Carlos became the only second man to stop former three-time world champion Emil Griffith in 14 rounds, and later outpointed him over 15 in a close fight. Before the fight, Carlos had to spar three rounds and run three miles in order to make his weight. Carlos then scored a win over tough Philadelphian Benny Briscoe, 
overcoming a shake in the ninth round in which Briscoe almost scored a knockout. A knockout in five rounds over European champion Tom Boggs. Then a knockout in seven rounds over Mexican Jose Mantequilla Napoles in Paris. And a 10-round knockout of tough Tony Licata of New Orleans at the Madison Square Garden in what would turn out to be Carlos's only fight in the United States. Carlos traveled in social circles he could never have imagined as a child, partying with movie stars in Paris and the Upper Crest back in Buenos Aires. He acted in movies and became a regular guest on television. And of course, he was rich. He drove the most expensive cars and dressed in fine suits, giving him a look that fit his newfound status. When I became champion, I was 28, Carlos said, according to Nigel Collins' fascinating book, Boxing Babylon. I was not a boy. It was a big change for me because I started to get big money. I could buy the biggest car. I learned to take care of my clothes. To become the middleweight champion of the world is very important in any part of the globe, including my country. I know Argentinians were very proud of me. And that they were, Irusta said. Carlos's fights, whether overseas or in Argentina, were huge events among his countrymen after he beat Nino Benvenuti. Everything stopped for the duration of the action, regardless of the time of day. He defended his title 14 times without loss, a feat never matched before or since in the middleweight division. He ended his career with a professional record of 100 fights, 87 wins, 10 draws, and only 3 losses early in his career. Carlos's middleweight championship title was lifted in 1975 by the WBC for not defending it against mandatory challenger Rodrigo Valdez. Valdez, a Colombian, then won the WBC's title, while Carlos kept the WBA's championship. So, in 1976, they finally met, this time world champion versus world champion. Valdez's brother had been shot to death one week prior to the fight, and he did not feel like fighting. Still, they were under a contract, and so the fight took place in Monte Carlo, and Carlos handed an uninterested Valdez a beating, winning a 15-round unanimous decision and unifying the world title once again. Because of the special circumstances under which Valdez performed, an immediate rematch was ordered, once again in Monte Carlo. This time, Valdez came out roaring. In the second round, right cross to the chin put Carlos down for the only time in his career. Valdez built a lead through the first half of the fight. Carlos, however, mounted a brilliant comeback and outboxed Valdez for the last eight rounds, winning a unanimous decision to retain the title and score his 14th title defense. Upon seeing his tattered face in the mirror after the bout, Carlos knew that it was time to walk away from the sport. Even under the intense exposure that comes with being world champion, no opponent was ever able to solve the riddle of Carlos Monzon. His style was neither flashy nor flawless. Numerous contemporaries would echo Carlos Arusta's sentiments on first catching sight of Monzon in the ring. A sound boxer, but nothing extraordinary. Brusa, his trainer and fellow inductee into the Hall of Fame, recalled with amusement this typical reaction to his charger in an interview with Hente magazine. After he won his ninth title defense, Mantequilla, Jose Napolis's trainer, Angelo Dundee, 
who has been in the corner for Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard, Leonard, no less, said to me, Brusa, how practical this guy is. He destroys you little by little, said Brusa. Carlos was able to use his lanky and seemingly ungainly physique to its full advantage, confusing his opponents with an upright stance and an array of defensive tests and grapples gleaned from Brusa's experience as a wrestler. Add to this the granite toughness of his frame and a deceptively destructive punch from both close range and distance, and Manzon's opponents must have felt they were scrapping with the hellacious beast scrambled out of some unfathomable pompous backwater. Like so many athletes who emerged from tough, violent backgrounds, Carlos Manzon did not have the capacity to fully submit himself to the comfortable life of fame and fortune which he had earned. In his early days as an amateur fighter, he often found himself in trouble with the law. He served brief stints in prison for inciting a football riot and brawling. Rumors, often backed up by physical evidence, of abusive behavior towards the women he was romantically involved with pursued him throughout his life. The report from Argentina, Manzon had accidentally shot himself. On February 28, 1973, Manzon endured a two-hour operation to remove a bullet from his right forearm. He told the press that he was getting ready to go hunting when his 22 caliber revolver had slipped from his hand, firing as it hit the floor. The New York Daily News joked, everybody is taking a shot at middleweight champ Carlos Manzon these days. The story was soon out that two bullets had found their way into Manzon, courtesy of Mercedes, his wife of nearly a dozen years. By now, she was better known in Argentina by her nickname, Palusa, which is Spanish for fluff. Mercedes played along with the false story at first. As Monzon underwent surgery at a San Miguel hospital, Mercedes posed for phot photographers, smiling sweetly. I've always told Carlos to be careful of his weapons, she said, but people think badly and try to make me responsible. It wasn't me. It was only an accident. The police seemed satisfied with the accident story, which was odd since Monzon had actually been shot twice, once in the arm and once in the shoulder. A gun might discharge after being dropped, but to think it would go off twice and hit a target was ridiculous. But Monzon's standing in Argentina was such that, that the police acknowledged the story, or perhaps accepted some hush money to drop the investigation even though the neighbors told police that just prior to the gunshots being heard, Manzon and Mercedes had been seen brawling in the front yard of their home. The story emerged that Mercedes shot Manzon after learning of his affair with another woman. Manzon's womanizing was a secret to no one. He and Mercedes would even adopt a child, Carlos Raul, whom many suspected was the result of one of Manzon's extramarital affairs. Manzon didn't go for help opting to sit around the house for a day. Only Manzon would consider walking off a couple of bullets. But when Brusa learned what had happened, the trainer arranged for his champion to be taken to a hospital. By now, Brusa was experienced at running interference for Manzon. He was used to negotiating with commissioners, mediating between Manzon and Mercedes, and convincing journalists to ignore Manzon's frequent scandals. Gunshots, though. That was something new. Brusa faced the press with an amazingly calm demeanor, saying the injuries wouldn't hamper Monzon's scheduled rematch with Emil Griffith. What Brusa didn't report was that the second bullet was inoperable, 
and that the little slug would remain inside Monzon's shoulder. It would be there for the rest of his life, a small reminder of the damage his infidelities might bring. Carlos Irusta attempted to explain the anomaly of a man so controlled within the ropes of a boxing ring and yet so wild out of it. Quote, He drank a lot, and you could say he was a violent drunk. I believe that when he was unable to express himself with words, he would respond with violence. The difference in the ring was that it was his work, and he analyzed all his aggression. He had an extraordinary coldness. End quote. An explosive temper and gruff demeanor did not seem to make the boxer any less attractive to high-profile women while at the peak of his fame in the 1970s. Appearing in movies only made his star burn brighter. When Carlitos made the movie El Macho, women went crazy. They threw themselves at him, Brusa said. The actress Ursula Andres came from Los Angeles to look for him. I told him to forget about girls while he was in the ring, and he understood. Argentina was both scandalized and enthralled when the middleweight champion began an affair with the country's most famous actress, Susana Jimenez, after the two of them had starred in the movie La Mary together in 1974, where they played husband and wife. Manzon was still married at the time, but the relationship would continue right up until his retirement in 1977. Carlos hated paparazzi who detailed his affairs. He went to Italy with Susana to participate in a movie and started increasingly traveling with her to locations in Brazil and the rest of Latin America, letting himself be seen with her, though still married. Susana reportedly encouraged him to quit boxing, and this, along with his increasingly decadent lifestyle, caused a falling out between the boxer, Brusa, and Lectura. The diva, today one of Argentina's most popular sh chat show hosts, was another of Monzon's lovers whose face sometimes bore the bruises of his violent domestic outbursts. Carlos was detained by the police repeatedly. Susana also began wearing sunglasses more often, presumably to hide her bruises, and many times paparazzi had to be hospitalized from the beatings suffered at the hands of Carlos. During this period, Carlos divorced his wife, and it was her rumored affair with singer and actor Cacho Castana that was blamed for the breakout between Carlos and Susana. A year after splitting with Susana, Manzon met Alicia Muniz, the woman who would become his second wife and mother to his child, Maximiliano. Once again, the relationship would turn out to be a tumultuous, tumultuous one, but this time it ended in tragedy. Though officially the pair had separated, they were together in a beachside Mar de Plata condo in the early hours of the morning on February 14, 1988, Valentine's Day. They began to fight that morning. He allegedly beat Alicia so many times that she was scarred and bloody, ran to the balcony of their second floor apartment, and presumably jumped. According to the investigation performed later, he followed her there, grabbed her by the neck, and then picked her up and pushed her off the balcony to her death, after which he followed her in the fall, only injuring his shoulder. The details will always be disputed, but one thing is certain. Alicia ended up falling from the balcony and was found dead. Carlos was arrested, setting off an O.J. Simpson-like trial and media frenzy that had Argentina riveted. People were stupefied when it happened. It was a Sunday during summer when there is not much news happening. 
Everyone was talking about how Manzon had killed Alicia. There was no talk of it having been an accident. Arista remembered as his countrymen glued to their televisions and radios during the trial, devouring every bit of information available as they once were glued to their TVs when he fought. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to 11 years in prison. The hero of Argentina had become an inmate. Me and my bad temper are the ones responsible for this, Carlos said, obviously taking some of the blame. Yes, me and my bad temper. Arusta visited Carlos in prison several times and found a broken man. He turned to religion, Arusta said, and became very withdrawn. The former champ continued to maintain his innocence in spite of his comments about his temper, even recalling to Arusta happy days he spent with Alicia and often asked to see the son that they had together, Maximiliano. But an autopsy indicated that Alicia had been strangled before she went over the balcony. Arusta was deeply saddened. He was another man, he said. When he was a champion, he was like a king or a lion. He used to walk in a way that made him look important. In jail, he was nothing. The man who used to give orders to people was now a man who said, yes, sir, yes, sir. It's a sad story. And it became even sadder. Carlos's violent personality didn't just cost him the life of his ex-wife. It cost him his own life, too. Given a day's leave of absence from prison for good behavior, he was returning by car in the evening of January 8, 1995, when he lost control of the vehicle. It rolled several times, and Manzon died before help could arrive. And so ended the life of one of Argentina's greatest sports and cultural figures, lying on the side of the road, looking up at the Santa Fe sky, as Arusta put it. His record stands at 87 wins, only three losses, nine draws, and one no contest. Of his wins, 59 came by knockout. His only losses were by points and early in his career. In 2003, he was named by The Ring magazine as one of the 100 greatest punchers of all time. On the independent computer-based computer ranking of BoxRec.com, he is listed as the third best middleweight boxer of all time, after Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Robinson. But that must have been a while ago, though, because I checked the website and he is now listed at number 33. Memories of him are complicated. Those from Santa Fe, obviously forgiving, remember him as a local hero who conquered the boxing world. Arusta said his people chanted his name at his funeral. Those from Buenos Aires, the capital, remember a great fighter, but one who took the life of an innocent young woman. There were others who, on the sporting side, saw him as a great champion and as someone who looked after his family and cared about them. He always maintained that he couldn't remember what had happened that night with Alicia. Most people won't pardon him, Irusta said. It's a very difficult, sad story. I suppose that night he was drunk or under the effects of drugs. He lost his mind. And I suppose he used to love Alicia Muniz. Many years have passed now. There has never been another champion like Carlos Monzon. He's the number one boxing champion in our history. I think now that's what people want to remember. I think there are other things they want to forget. Sergio Martinez blanched when someone compared him to Carlos Monzon in 2010. He took it as a compliment, but wanted to make something clear. Carlos Monzon, he said through a translator, is at a different level. 
Today, a monument to him stands in Santa Fe, Argentina. And that's it for today's episode. Hope you all liked it. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Coastal Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, please email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.